But let us now turn to our scripture reading, which comes from Psalm 46. And we'll be beginning a new series in the book of Psalms this morning. And the message will be entitled, Finding Security in an Unstable World. So let us now turn to Psalm 46, and we'll be reading the whole chapter, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Though nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war seas to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm also one of the pastors here at Renewal Main Line. And our prayer is that this service today helps you to be able to connect with the Lord regardless of where you are in your spiritual journey. As Luke said, we are starting a new series today. We're going to be looking at various psalms for the next six weeks. Why is that? It's because times of upheaval, whether that's upheaval in your own personal life or upheaval in the larger society, or upheaval in both, times of upheaval produce all kinds of feelings, all kinds of emotions start to bubble up to the surface. There's confusion, there's anger, fear, apathy, doubts. And the question then is, what do you do with those feelings? What do you do with all of those emotions? How do you handle them in a way that's healthy and productive? There are ways to do that, but there's also a lot of ways to handle them that just make life worse, that would actually add to the upheaval that you're already experiencing. Let's talk about two of those unhealthy kind of ways. On the one extreme would be to downplay the importance of what you're feeling. The other side would be to overinflate your feelings. Now the side that downplays your emotions says, what is really important in life is not what you feel, but what you do. Feelings, if you want to think about it this way, feelings are the caboose of the train. So what you really need to be concerned about is the engine. Get the engine on the track, point in the right direction, do the right things, act right, and your feelings will get in line. They'll follow along. Now, that's the position that traditional religion normally takes. It's also something that you hear in popular self-help circles. It's the fake it till you make it approach to life. In this extreme, feelings are at best avoidable. There's something that's kind of a nuisance factor. You can turn them off when you actually need to. At worst, they're dangerous. And so the counsel tends to be stuff them down and get on with life. Now, what's the problem with this approach? Theologically, it means that you're ignoring part of what it means to be human. You're trying to squelch a piece of what it means to be made in the image of God. 
God has what you could call an emotional range. He's not controlled by his emotions, but he has a way of being that correlates to our own feelings. Probably to say it more accurately, our feelings are analogous to something that's going on in God. So when God responds to others and when God responds to what takes place in this world, he does so with actions, he does so with thoughts, but he also has an emotive aspect to himself. You look through scripture and you discover there are times where God is happy, where God is what we would describe as sad or he's angry. And you discover in scripture that not only does he have an emotive response, you discover that his responses go far beyond our own. He's the happiest person that you've ever met. He's the most peaceful, most joyful person that you meet in scripture. He's also the most grieved. He's the angriest. So if you ignore your feelings, if you tamp them down, you're gonna lose some of what it means to be his image. You won't live your life the way that God lives his. And if you do that long enough, there are consequences. You're gonna discover that you can no longer respond emotionally in ways that are appropriate. You're not gonna be able to feel sad when you know that you should feel sad or when you wish that you could feel sad or you won't be able to get excited for somebody else in the way that you want to and you're going to start going through life relatively flat emotionally not fully engaged now the opposite extreme the extreme that you tend to hear coming from our modern world is that your feelings are the most genuine most authentic part of you the most pure part of you that there is and the counsel from this direction says if it feels good, do it. Don't ask philosophical questions of right and wrong ways to feel of what you should or should not feel. Instead, recognize that if you feel a certain way, then by definition, that's what's right for you. That's your truth speaking to you. Anything else is dishonest, it's inauthentic. So don't question why you feel a certain way, rather give into it, be yourself, be true to yourself, express yourself regardless of how you're feeling. Now the danger here is that you're ignoring the reality that your feelings are not always accurate. You know that. You know that there have been times when you felt a certain way, when you have felt very strongly a certain way, only to find later that you no longer feel that way. Or worse, that you're kind of embarrassed now by how you felt at one point or by how strongly you felt. Maybe you've had this experience, you've been in an argument with someone and you were passionate. And, and you were arguing as strongly as you possibly could, you wake up the next day and you wonder, what was the big deal? Why did that mean so much to me yesterday? Because it sure doesn't today. Why is that? It's because scripture tells us every part of us as human beings now lives under the curse of sin. And, and that means that every part of us has some kind of brokenness to it. That there is nothing that is free from the taint of sin. There is a, a twistedness at our most essential element, our most essential nature. And that twistedness, that distortion then percolate, percolates up through everything else that we do. It percolates up through everything that we think, it percolates up through everything that we feel. And so not everything that you and I feel passionately about is the way that we should feel. That there are times when we actually are drugged away by our feelings. When you go down that road, when you let your feelings drive you, you're also gonna lose some of your humanity, some of your ability to image God. Scripture tells you that God has a greater emotional range than you do, but it also tells you that he is the most self-controlled person that you've ever encountered. 
he feels, he feels very deeply, but he's not controlled by what he feels, not at the whim of what he feels. He's not drowned by his feelings. He's not enslaved to them. And so by giving into your feelings, losing yourself in the flood of them, you're going to lose some of what it means to be made in his image. Either road is going to take you into a bad place. Downplay your feelings, inflate your feelings, and either way you lose some of your humanity. Handle your feelings wrong, you'll lose some of what it means to be fully human. Think, okay, well then what do I do with these feelings and these emotions that I have? Scripture comes along and says, here's a third way. Pray your feelings. Take them before the Lord. Let them be something that then moves you to God. Don't ignore them. Don't assume they're pure. Instead, examine them in the light of who God is, in the light of what he says about how he's made you, in the light of what he says is going on in the larger world, and in the light of what he's doing in that larger world. Let him counsel you on how to respond well to the upheaval in, the life, in your life and in the lives of the people around you. In other words, your feelings can be a catalyst to spiritual growth and renewal, to becoming more fully human. That means then you're, not gonna ha you're gonna have to not stuff them, not be enslaved by them, you're gonna pray them. There's no better place for you to learn how to pray them than the Psalms, that's where we're gonna be for the next six weeks. Now today we're looking at fear, or more accurately, we're looking at how not to fear. Fear is the flip side of security. Fear is what happens when you can't find security. Fear is what happens when what you thought was going to be secure turns out not to be. Now, when the scripture calls us not to fear, or when God's people proudly proclaim, as they do in Psalm 46, verse 2, we will not fear, it's not because all the scary stuff has been taken out of the world. It hasn't. The psalm assumes that frightening things are very present, that verse 1 Trouble is something you should expect. And so the claim that we will not fear is not because troubles no longer exist. It's because God's people have found something in the middle of their troubles that's actually stronger than all of those troubles, something that's more enduring and it gives them security, more enduring, more solid than all the scary stuff around them. And because of that, they can't be touched anymore by what they're afraid of. Now, there are a lot of things in this world that look solid things that look like they would give you security in life. But if you look past the surface of them, you discover that in reality they're not secure at all. And if you trust those things to make you secure so that you can then live without fear, you're going to find out that they can't deliver. You're going to end up living a very scared life. So today we're looking at Psalm 46. We want to see two things. We want to see, number one, things that look secure but really are not. Things that if you put your, secure, your, your, your confidence in, you're actually going to end up living very fearful and very scared. Second thing that we want to do is we want to look at things that, something that doesn't look secure but actually is. So things that look secure and aren't, and something that doesn't look secure but is. So first, things that look secure but aren't. Psalm 46 says that there are two things in this life that people are tempted to put their confidence in. They're tempted to put their confidence in the physical world, and they're tempted to put their confidence in human beings who have power over that physical world. Two things that look very strong, but in reality aren't. And the way that the psalm talks about these two different realms is by pulling an example out of each one. It's going to talk about mountains, it's going to talk about nations, 
And it's going to remind us that these things that look very stable actually aren't. That verse 2, mountains can be moved. Verse 6, nations can totter. So let's take them one at a time. Mountains are perhaps one of the most solid, most enduring parts of the natural order. They're one of the things that human beings have always had to work around. We've been forced to walk around them, to go over them, to go through them, because they just don't move. They're fixed. They're permanent. And that's how we tend then to view the physical world, as something that's a given. It's something that you just don't even need to think about. And so when you take a step, when you're walking down the road and you go to take that next step, you never ever think to yourself, oh boy, I, I, I hope the ground stays where it is. I hope that it does not open up suddenly and I disappear into nothingness. You don't think like that. Instead, you take for granted that it'll stay put. The ground was here yesterday. It was here a moment ago. It's still here right now. And you firmly expect that it's going to be here that next moment that you put your foot down on it. You never, ever think about that. And you believe that the rest of the physical world is the same, that what was will continue to be. You believe that physical matter is reliable and stable, that it always was, it always will be. And that belief then gives you a certain amount of security because it allows you to think, well, I can predict what's going to happen. And because I can predict what's going to happen, then I feel safe because I have some control over my world. Or at least it feels that way until verse 2, the earth moves, until it gives way, until the mountains come crashing down into the sea, until what was no longer is, and until what was stable, what was predictable, isn't any longer. Until some crazy little part of this world, like a mountain or a virus, suddenly goes rogue and refuses to stay in one place and no longer can be contained and no longer is predictable, seems to have a mind of its own. And when that happens, your confidence in the natural order is shaken and you begin to fear. Why? Because what you built your security on is gone. And now you're not sure what's going to happen next. That's one security imposter, the physical world. Here's the second security imposter. It's the security that's found in nations. Nations look really strong. They impose their power on their part of the world through various means, through economic means, through scientific means, through technological, military me means. And they are often very successful in getting what they want. Very tempting then to put your trust in them to have a safe and secure life. A life then that would allow you to live without fear. It's tempting until you realize, verse 6, that kingdoms can totter. That things happen that even the strongest kingdom cannot control. And when that happens, people lose confidence in their country. They lose confidence in its ability to give them security. Kingdoms totter. But they do more than just totter. Verse 6, they also rage. They get incensed. They give themselves to war. Verse 9 tells us that God's going to end the wars of the nations. But why does God have to do that? It's because the nations won't do that. See, there's something within us as a species that is never satisfied with what we have. That's what history teaches us. It's a story of our willingness to use whatever power we have to get what we want, regardless of who gets hurt in the process. And so nations go to war against nations. Nations not only war against other nations, they war within themselves. For who's going to eventually have control over that nation? You can leave one country for another, one nation for another, and there are countries that are better that are worth going to. But you're never going to find one that is fully satisfied within itself. 
you'll never find one that has no turmoil. You'll never find one that is at peace. The nations rage and they totter. You look at the psalm and you realize that the solidity of the physical order, the strength of our nations, those, that solidity is so easily disrupted. And so they look secure on the outside, but all you have to do is scratch them just a little bit and they're exposed. They're not enduring. They're not powerful. They're imposters. And if you build your security on them, you're going to end up living in fear because they're just not permanent enough, not enduring enough to give you what you need. And yet it's very tempting to put your trust in them. It's very tempting, especially for us who live in the Philadelphia suburbs. We tend to be primarily middle to upper middle class people. We've been taught to build our lives on these two realities. We've been taught that if we want to have a good life, build your life on education, on a good career, on being productive, on going to work, on providing for people, on enjoying life. And in order to do that, we have to assume that this world around us is stable and we assume that our nation will guard and protect our way of life. We've put our confidence in this physical world and in human power. And this historical moment is teaching us, man, this doesn't take a whole lot to destabilize everything that we were told to build our life on. Maybe you have some sense of what that's like. Maybe you're living in fear now. Why? Because your security's gotten shaken. It was built on something that could be shaken. Or maybe you're having the, alt the other experience. Maybe you're finding that your security is actually still there, that you're not shaken, that you're not living in fear because it was built on something more permanent. I hope that's the case because the psalmist actually says the world is much worse than just physical instability and national chaos. Instead, he's also considering a larger hostile spiritual world. We talked last week about the sea in the Old Testament, how it is a symbol of evil and of chaos, how it's, it, it gives you sort of this picture, this word picture of the spiritual world that fights against God and against his people. And you see this picture showing up again in verse three. The sea is roaring, it's foaming, it's swelling. It's coming after the mountains. It's threatening to engulf them. It's active, it's aggressive, it's destructive. And you start to realize you're not simply up against an unpredictable physical world. You're not just up against a raging humanity that's out for its own best interests, but you also face the restless, aggressive pursuit of evil. The pursuit of evil that's trying to destroy everything that God's ever made. That's the world that you and I live in every single day. A world where evil is trying to ruin the creation, where humanity is at each other's throats, and the physical creation is not trustworthy. In other words, this psalm is not simply for one-off unique times when there's a particular danger that's taking place. This is a psalm that describes all of life. It says life is always dangerous. Life is inherently insecure. And the note of hope in this psalm is that even in that world, you do not have to live in fear. You do not have to live in fear. You can live confidently, confidently, securely. But in order to do that, you're going to have to look outside of this world for that security. And that's why God's people declare, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. What do we know about God? God is our refuge. He's the place of safety that we run to. He's our strength. He's our resource for dealing with things that are overwhelming. So this God that we cannot see 
actually ends up being more stable than the natural world, than the nations that we can see. The external world looks strong and stable. It really isn't. We can't see this God, and we learn that he is stable and strong enough for us. How is he then this help? Well, there's two ways in the psalm. Number one, his presence brings security to his people right now. And his coming judgment is going to bring that security to the entire rest of the universe in the future. So we'll talk about both of those. First, his security is for his people right now. Verse 4, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Now notice the contrasts here. The mountains can be moved. The city of God cannot. Away from the city of God, the sea threatens the world. It's roaring, it's foaming. But in the city of God, there's something different. There's gladness, not fear. Why? Because there's a different kind of water. There's a river, not this raging sea. Now, if you go to modern-day Jerusalem, you're going to discover there's no river there. Never has been one. Jerusalem's never had a river in it, and the psalmist would know that. So when he's talking about this city of God, he's not referring to the actual physical capital city, Jerusalem. Instead, he's drawing your attention to something that you would have found in Jerusalem, to what would make Jerusalem utterly unique in the entire world at that time, and that would be that it was the place where God's presence dwelled on this earth. It's where the temple was. And that's why the psalm says, this is God's habitation. He is in the midst of her. This is where his presence is. And where God's presence is, you don't find this water that destroys. You find a different kind of water. You find a water that nourishes, a kind of water that provides life. It's what the city would need. It's a special kind of life. It's a kind of life that makes you glad, even when you're facing all these cataclysmic, overwhelming, troubling things in the world. You still have gladness. Not gladness because of the chaos. You're not happy about the destruction. You're not glad because, well, it doesn't affect you. It might. You're glad instead because you know that God has given you life inside right now. And you realize that if he's doing that now, if he is with you, then nothing that happens here can ruin his plans for you. Not even if the earth gives way, if the nations rage, and if evil swallows everything up. God is not promising that you're never going to face any real physical danger on this earth. It's not promising to keep you from all physical harm. The real city, Jerusalem, was actually later overrun by the Babylonians. Her people were exiled. Her walls were broken down. God is not promising the kind of security that nations promise. He's promising something better. He's promising that nothing in this world, not physical disruption, not national chaos, not evil activities, nothing will ruin his plans for this universe. Nothing will take away that life inside of you because he is the one who brings it by his presence. And so nothing that this world throws at you or nothing that it throws at him is going to be too much for him. Instead, as the end of the psalm says, he will be exalted. He will be exalted among the nations. He'll be exalted in all of the earth, supreme over all of the other things that you've ever faced or will face. And how's he going to do that? It's going to be by bringing security to this earth for the future. Verse 9, he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. There's a judgment that's coming. 
a judgment that he brings. It's a time when he's no longer going to put up with humanity's rage. He's no longer going to put up with the nations constantly being at war in one way or another. Instead, God's going to bring judgment to this earth. And yet there's a sweetness in this judgment because God's judgment brings security. It ends all the instability that our sin causes, that it causes on this earth. And so in light of this coming judgment, God mercifully steps in and he says something to people right now. He says it to his people. He says it to the raging nations. Verse 10, be still. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Be still. Be at peace. Do not be afraid. Listen to me. Trust me. One day I'm going to take away all of these things that you fear. I'm going to make everything right. And because of that, know that I am God. Get yourself right with me. Be on the right side of judgment, not the side that is crushing and destructive. That's where real security is, regardless of what's happening around you. It's a security that comes outside of ourselves. It's a security that actually comes outside of this world. Now, maybe you've joined us this morning and you're thinking, I, I, I don't know, Bill. I, I, I don't know, honestly, if I really believe in God. I'm kind of interested in religion. I, I know some Christians, they seem to be kind of nice, but I don't know, the world kind of feels very solid to me. I, okay, I hear that I can't really trust it for security, but frankly, it, it's all that I've got. So I'm just going to have to look for security in this life and do the best that I can. Now, if that's something that's similar to the thought going through your mind, let me ask you a question. Why is it that people believe that security is possible? Why is security something that we actually want, something that we long for? If this is a chaotic world, a world where only the strong survive, a world that has no creator, has no one who is shepherding it and guarding it and keeping it and moving it toward a certain future that he intends, if that's the case, where does this notion of security come from? Because there is nothing in our history, go back as far as you want, there's nothing in our history that shows any of us have ever been secure. All that the nations have ever known is turmoil. The idea of security doesn't come from history. So where did this idea that people could live without fear, where did that come from? Why didn't this longing for peace in the middle of turmoil, why didn't that idea just sort of die out long ago? Why didn't evolution just sort of move that out of our genes? Why is it so persistent? If there is no God, why do human beings have a desire inside to obtain something that they've never experienced that isn't possible? Why do we believe, why do we want a life without fear? Do you understand the question? If you want something that does not exist in this universe, and has never existed in this universe, something that you do not find in the larger society, and let's be frank, something that the larger society doesn't find in you. If that's the case, then it's up to you to answer, where did that desire come from? Where did it originate? It's a person who's done a lot of thinking about these kinds of longings, longings that we all have, but we can't fully satisfy on this earth. And C.S. Lewis, he realized Quote, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for these desires exists. 
A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world." Unquote. Let me repeat that. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Your desire for security, for a secure life, a life without fear, that desire joins you to the rest of humanity. We all have that desire, that same longing. But that desire points you outside the human race for satisfaction. It points you outside the whole world if you want to have that desire fully satisfied. You're never going to find it here in the way that you're longing for it. You need it. It's something that you, that you not only want, it's a, it's a need. It's one of those signals that tells you there is another world, that you were made for more than this. And it's a need because you take a step every day and you get a little bit closer to that other world. Let me give a very vivid picture here of what life is like. You live on a little ball of rock that is hurtling throughout space at tremendous speeds. It's surrounded by myriad threats to your existence. One day, despite your best efforts, a door's gonna open and you're gonna fall through into that other world, the one for which you were made. Now on that day, what are you gonna depend on for your security? What's going to keep you secure? What are you gonna trust? Here are the two options. You can submit to God, you can listen to him, you can be still. You can submit to God and find security. Or you can refuse God and live in fear. You can refuse God, you can insist on providing your own security for yourself, by your own power. You can refuse God, you will live in fear now and you'll be judged later. Or you can submit to God. And you're going to find that you can live securely now without fear. Why? Because God has said he will absorb that judgment for you. That's why Jesus came to this earth. He came to be Emmanuel. It's a name that the prophet Isaiah told us that we would recognize him by. It's a name that means God with us. He came to be the presence of the living God living among his people. And he came to bring them a life that could never be taken away from them because it would be a life that would provide life inside of them a life-giving stream inside of them. He claimed in John 7, 38, that whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He came to give us life, real spiritual life. He came to be the Prince of Peace, the one who would put all wars to an end forever. But in order to bring life and peace to his people, this Emmanuel, this God with us, first had to be judged. See, the temple was not simply the place where you found the presence of God. The temple was the only place where you could find the presence of God and not be destroyed. And the reason for that is because you had to come and when you came to meet God there, you brought a sacrifice. And the sacrifice, an animal, was judged instead of you. It was the place where God would accept a substitute on your behalf. 
And when Jesus came, he came to be that ultimate sacrifice, that ultimate substitute, the one who would be judged for you so that you would be secure in God's presence, so that God's presence would bring life to you and peace and gladness, not fear, not insecurity. It's because we have that sacrifice that God's people say, we will not fear because God's presence is no longer a scary thing to us. The fear has been taken away, and if we have no fear with God, we have no reason to fear anything else. Now, how do you live this out? How does God's presence bringing life and peace to you, how does that change the way that you live in this world when there are scary things out there, things that really might hurt you? Well, I want to invite you to have a conversation with yourself, to reason with your fears on the basis of what God tells you done this in counseling with other people, but you can also do it by yourself. When you find yourself afraid, make yourself stop and think. Think about what you're afraid of. Think about why you're insecure. Think very specifically. Think about what it is that you're afraid you're going to lose. Your life, your lifestyle, your health, your finances, your family. Think about what is at risk in your mind, and then let yourself imagine a future where the worst actually comes to pass. Christians are not afraid to face the worst because our faith is in something that's really solid, something that's enduring, that's outside of this world, someone who's really solid. And so we have the freedom to ask, what would happen if this thing that I'm really scared of, what would happen if that actually happened to me? What's the worst that would happen? For instance, what would happen if you got sick right now? What's the worst thing that would happen if you started feeling flu-like symptoms? What would happen next? Ask the question. Make yourself answer it. What would happen next? Well, if I had flu-like symptoms, the worst that would happen is I'd have to call the doctor. And then push yourself at that point by asking, okay, if you called the doctor, and the doctor gives you the worst news possible, what would happen then? Well, then I'd have to get tested. Okay, and if you were tested, what's the worst that would happen? I'd have the virus. Okay, and the worst that would happen then? Well, I, I'd have to be quarantined. And the worst that would happen from being quarantined is that I might begin to deteriorate. And the worst that would happen from that is I'd go to the hospital, might lose my job, and the worst that would happen from that is I'd be in the ICU. Okay, that's really bad. Then what? What's the worst then? Well, I don't really make it. I, I, I end up dying. Okay, it's really important. We need to go one more step. We need to ask the question, what's the very worst thing that would happen to you then? I would go to heaven and I would be with Jesus. With this one who has put life inside of me that will continue on after my body dies. Can you handle that? If that's the very worst thing that happens to you, can you handle that? Do you see? Trace any scenario they all come out the same. The very worst thing that will ever happen to you is that you will die here on this earth, 
this world that pretends to be so substantial, and you will then have a life that will never end, one that is really substantial, one that is stable beyond your wildest dreams. And when you start to think like that, you start to wonder, why are some of us so scared right now? Why are some of us so afraid? Why do some of us label ourselves as germaphobes, like that's our primary identity? And we live in fear of microorganisms that we cannot see. Why is that? It's because we have greater confidence in the power of that germ to ruin our lives than we have confidence in the God who made us and who loves us. We have more faith in the germ's ability to ruin our life than we have faith in God to redeem everything that ever happens to us and enters into our life. We have more faith in the creation than we have faith in the creator. We have more love for something in creation than we have love for the creator. Now listen, if the answer to can you handle that, can you handle that the worst thing that happens to you is that you're with Jesus forever, if the answer to that is no, I can't handle that, I don't want to handle that, or, or even I'm not sure, then what do you do? You admit the reality. You admit the reality that you find more security here on this earth than you find in God. That you find more security in what he has made than in the one who has made it. And you admit that you are looking for something more in this world than you are ever looking for him. And then what? You go and talk to him. You take your feelings and you pray them to God. And you admit this and you ask God to forgive you for that. And you ask God to forgive you for finding him to be so unattractive and so unappealing that you'd rather have something here on earth than you would have the one who made it. You confess that to him. You ask him for faith. You ask him for a deeper experience of that river of life flowing inside of you so that you actually are glad in his presence. And as he starts to move in you and give you that gladness, then you live out of that gladness. So the next time that you put on a mask because you have to go outside, you don't put it on because you're terrified and afraid, but you put it on because you realize that the call of God is for you to go outside at that point in time. You don't want to miss what God is doing in your life. See, God's plan of redemption is not on hold because of a virus. That means that your plan, part in God's plan of redemption is not put on hold. That means then that you have to enter into that part, and the only way that you can do that is if you join in with the rest of God's people and say, we will not fear, because God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Let me pray for us. Lord God, you are so much more substantial and more powerful than anything we've ever considered. And Lord, it is only our blindness that keeps us from seeing you. Lord God, Open up our spirits. Allow us to see more clearly. Let us see the ways that the, the world and, and the nations are, are just unable to make us secure. And give us greater confidence in you and in the security that you promise. Lord, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters. Lord, release that river of life inside of us. Let it flow. Let us find gladness in your presence, in Jesus' name.